Welcome to the 442nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome disaster researchers Wesley Cheek and Ksenia Chimutina to discuss their article, Building Back Better is Neoliberal Post-Disaster Reconstruction. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of March 2nd, 2022, according to the UK government website, 183,579 people have lost their lives in the UK to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, her heart was so big, seven-year-old Knoxville girl dies of COVID-19 complications. This appeared in the Knoxville News Sentinel, Knoxville, Tennessee. This was written by Liz Keller and appeared February 8th, 2022. A young Knox County Schools student has died of complications from COVID-19. Ada Lynn Rita Gravis, age seven, died Monday night, February 7th, 2022. After developing a severe neurological response to COVID-19, her mother, Jennifer Kowalski Gravis, told Knox News. Ada Lynn, a second grader at Rocky Hill Elementary School, suffered from Raynaud's syndrome, and her mother said doctors think COVID-19 triggered an autoimmune disorder in the child. She was just the best kid in the whole wide world, Jennifer Kowalski-Gravis said. Her heart was so, so big, but it just wasn't strong enough. Adeline had a low-grade fever and then went downhill all of a sudden, Kowalski-Graves said. It was within hours. Her body just couldn't fight it. She was admitted to East Tennessee Children's Hospital and then was transferred to Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Kowalski Gravis said. Adeline had thousands and thousands of people praying for her, she said. The whole school held prayer groups. It was so amazing. She was so loved. She lighted up everyone's life. Described as a mother hen to all the children in the neighborhood, Adeline had prayed for her little sister every single night for four years, her mother said. Her biggest dream came true January 28th when baby sister Ella was born, said Holly Pace, who had been Adeline's kindergarten teacher at Rocky Hill. She talked about it nonstop. She was so proud, she said. Adeline only got to spend a few days with Ella before she got sick and had to isolate, Kowalski Gravis said. Neighbor Deanna Ford said Adeline was sick with a fever but was in good spirits. She was really fine until suddenly she wasn't, Ford said. It's really unbelievable. Within hours of being admitted to the hospital, Ada Lynn was intubated, her mother said. They think her body was attacked, Kowalski Gravis said. 
adding a neurologist, said Adolin developed acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or ADEM. Known to occur more often in children, ADEM is a rare disorder that follows infections and can trigger widespread inflammation of brain and spinal cord tissues. Though the exact cause is unknown, but in severe cases, the nerve damage caused by inflammation can lead to long-term disability and death. It is known to occur more commonly in upper respiratory infections like those that can occur with the Omicron variant. Dozens of instances have been reported worldwide following COVID-19 infection. We are deeply saddened by the sudden loss of one of our students, Rocky Hill Principal Tina Holt said in a message shared with school's parents, our thoughts are with all those who are grieving, especially the Gravis family. Counselors are available to support students during this time, Holt said. Adeline's death will leave a big hole in her school and her community, said Pace. She was wise beyond her years, Pace said. Every kiddo in the school gravitated to her. She was just gentle and had a light about her. The outpouring of support has been incredible, her mother said. Adeline touched so many lives. She was the most amazing girl with the biggest heart. That kid deserved the world. The Knox County Health Department said this is the first pediatric death in Knox County related to COVID-19. The obituary of Adelyn Rita Gravis, who died age seven, February 7th, 2022, um, COVID-19 complications. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. And I say this all the time, and it's true. This is one I've really been looking forward to, but I've really been looking forward to this. Let me introduce my guests. Wesley Cheek is a sociologist of disasters and a geographer focusing on critical urban theory and community involvement in post-disaster reconstruction at Edge Hill University in the UK. For the past decade, he's undertaken extensive ethnographic fieldwork in the town of Minami Sanriku, a small fishing, fishing village in Miyagi Prefecture, Japan. His research sits at the confluence of architectural history, cultural heritage, and disasters, and has largely focused on northeastern Japan, but also southeastern Louisiana and the American Gulf South. My second guest, who I'm really happy to bring back to COVID call for the second time, is Ksenia Chimutina. She is a reader in sustainable and resilient urbanism at Loughborough University in the UK. Ksenia's research focuses on the processes of urban disaster risk creation and systemic implications of sustainability and resilience in the context of neoliberalism. Ksenia uses her work to draw attention to the fact that disasters are not natural, and she's a co-host of a podcast, Disasters Deconstructed. Ksenia and Wes, welcome to COVID Calls. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Did you, uh, I actually, I know exactly where that elementary school is in Knoxville. So, uh, I mean, that's, yeah, so that's a really, you know, a very, very sad obituary either way. But uh, I, you know, I drive past there. I I work at a a summer camp for most of my life that's um, in well, it was based in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I pass by that neighborhood every time I'm up there going out uh, to my friend's house. So, man, that's really sad. I mean, it's always sad, but it's sadder when you can like picture the place, right? Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I know Knoxville, but I didn't know that mm-hmm. school 
and the part of that of the obituary where they talked about thousands and thousands of people praying that's true i mean mm -hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that the sort of church extended church community there is is mm -hmm. vast um but yeah it's a really it's a sad story let and me Knoxville, um, great great town knoxville for anyone who's never been I recommend. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful part of Tennessee. Let me start um, kind of how I usually do, just find out where you're calling from, get an update, what the pandemic's looking like there. Wes, let me start with you on that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where am I calling from? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm calling from lovely Lancashire, uh, just outside of uh, Liverpool uh, in the UK, where I moved um Jeez, it's been almost two months now where I, I moved from Kyoto to, to the UK. I'm a, a newcomer here. Um, and was the second part of the question was how, are, how is uh, COVID stuff going? Yeah. It's weird because I, I moved from Japan where when I walk outside of my house, I put a mask on and uh, I wear it for the rest of the time that I'm outside of my house. And I'm very careful about that. Uh, and I moved here to where um, nobody seems to really care particularly much about that anymore um especially well that's especially... that's because covid is over as of yesterday i don't know if you haven't heard the government well, yeah. announcement you know? Co ah. covid is over here so it's not something that we have to care about anymore uh and so yeah, that's nice yeah. that we solved it um it's weird though because when i look up how many people are dying daily from it it seems like maybe it's not over but my you know the people i encounter on a daily basis assure me that it, that it is i will say i was in florida last march um where i'm from and it's a different thing than there. In Florida, if I wore a mask into a store, people looked at me like I was a crazy person, right? Like they looked honestly angry at me. Uh, here, nobody seems to care very much if I wear a mask. It seems like it's a completely fine thing to do. It's just no one does it. Um, I did want to tie that back into the obituary that you read because uh, like a lot of people, especially maybe, you know, if you have kids around that age, you're wondering like, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some factor in here, right? That happened. And, uh, it sounds like the 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 little girl had a chronic illness, right, or some other. Right. And so that's been an astonishing thing for me. I've actually asked one class, like, why why does nobody wear masks here? And, and they said, well, everyone's already kind of got it, and it's not that big a deal anymore, anyway. Yeah. Is what a student in a disaster class told me. And then we have all of this stuff, as Ksenia well knows, in the UK, all of this um, accessibility stuff that we have to do for everything. Like you know, even like a PowerPoint, I'm supposed to make it a certain way for accessibility, right? Like that's all. And it's like, well, are these not accessibility issues that I don't want to accidentally kill someone who has underlying conditions? But I, I, anyway, I've been saying I say I've been saying that to people for two months now, but uh, like everybody else, I've given up too. So I think it's a pretty well, I, it's a pretty fascinating insight, actually, the the degree to which we go through important necessary practices that mm. that try to provide protection and accessibility for people, not nearly enough in the United mm. States, but yeah. um, still. For people who are immunocompromised or people who have disabilities, but then, um, you know, not paying attention to that when it comes time to deal with a non-pharmaceutical intervention yeah. is staggering. And I guess it's just one more place where, and I think we'll come to this in our conversation, where there's just different regimes of risk and protection and they somehow just cannot get integrated. Ksenia, uh, let me bring you in on this and just wow. to get an update on where you're from and how it's looking there. I'm in Nottingham, so I'm about three hours away from Wes, I think, on the train, so right in the center of the UK. It's beautiful and great today. You can kind of see it from it's my window. Um, yeah, so as I said, as of yesterday, um, 
announced it, that COVID is over. Um, so things are kind of getting back to normal, whatever that means. And um, the free testing, I think, is finishing on the 1st of April. So we won't have to, you know, report the results anymore on the 1st of April. I think we won't have to isolate anymore as of 1st of April. It's, it's just all um, becoming very you know, weird and haphazard. Um, but clearly, Johnson knows best. So I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I've been asking guests to share a memory, the impossible question uh, in COVID calls is a way to just kind of see what's really sticking in people's memories of, of this time. Ksenia, can I ask you to talk about that? I mean, you've been a guest before, um, earlier on, actually, you were on the 84th episode. So it was wow. in, in COVID years, it was a decade ago. But um, what, do you, what do you remember of COVID at this point? It's, you know, it's such a difficult question. Um, and for, for me, I think the kind of the, the biggest memory or, you know, that the range of memories is just the silence. We live right in the city center. So there is there is like always noise, right? There is always traffic, the massive kind of motorways just here and nightclubs, you know, and all sorts of things. Um, and it was just silence. It was empty and silent. And there were no people because kind of everyone, I guess, who could move out of the city center did so. Um, and it, it was incredible. It was peaceful in a way, you know, in the sort of morbid, perhaps a little bit way, um, because I have lived in city centers in urban areas all my life, and I have never seen empty streets before. Um, and that was that for almost 12 weeks, you know, in the first lockdown, it was, it was just emptiness. Um, and I, I don't think I will ever quite kind of get over it or process it, um, because it will probably never be again like that. Wes, same question for you. I was thinking about that as a hard one because it seems to be like a memory from what stage of this? Like it, it, my memories of two years ago are so different from now. So when COVID first kind of hit, when we realized it was a thing, I was actually doing field work in in uh, in Tohoku. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden there's this thing happening and it was like, well, are we taking this seriously this time? Like what's going on? And then uh, I remember like trying I was having to go back to Kyoto and like running around trying to find masks and all of a sudden to get on the Shinkansen and all of a sudden there weren't masks available anymore. And like, you know, I'm not a connoisseur of masks at that point the way I am now. And so I don't know like what kind of mask, what do I need? Um, what's going on? And then one of the big memories for me is back in Kyoto when uh, Abe was still the prime minister then. And Abe made the announcement that all school was going to be canceled. Um, and everyone, you know, every everyone in our neighborhood was like, what What does that mean? Like, what do we do? And then all of a sudden, just like all the kids weren't in school. Uh, and so I would take my 10 year old to work with me. Uh, I guess he was uh, nine at the time. Uh, and, you know, I had a schedule for him and we go out to the, the college, which is empty and um, do our PE class doing like push ups on the out in the middle of the college and stuff. And just like nobody was around. And it being Kyoto, like kind of like Cindy mentioned, all of a sudden it went from. Uh, Kyoto during the tourist boom where I couldn't even catch a bus to work. They were so crowded uh, to just nobody. There was just nobody all of a sudden. And I have to I have to tell you, Kyoto with uh, pandemic Kyoto uh, was the finest um, Kyoto, sadly. But uh, aside from the pandemic, having no one there was wonderful. Um, but yeah, it, it, my memories of that time are I feel like they're very vivid. I can remember this kind mm -hmm. of crisis period. And I feel like I feel like my. Um, my uh like now I, I don't know like what is my memory of it it's all kind of just worked back into like normal days just kind of sucking a little bit more
anymore. I don't, you know, it's hard to say. I thank you both for sharing that and that emptiness and that feeling of that quiet. I've reflected on that a lot. And it, um, to me, it brought back memories of something I had never experienced. Well, I lived through the Cold War, but it brought back this sort of sense of like a fear of like what it would have been like to be in a town next to a town that had just experienced a nuclear attack. You know, that, that everything was quiet, but you but there was a sense, like a sense of dread of going outside, particularly early on. And I wonder, I mean, Cassini, you're talking about the, being in city centers that were quiet, but not destroyed. It's a very strange, you know, sort of cognitive dissonance when we think about disasters. Absolutely, because I, I think it's perhaps the narrative of disaster, right? And the way that we talk about it, it's kind of like a shock, something big, right? It's like something happening. And I think every time we see um, kind of the image of disaster, say on, on TV, right? Or in the radio, it is, even if it's a picture, it, it, the association would be with noise, right? Because there is kind of a destruction or there is a loss, right? Or like crime kind of death, right? And that that was the opposite because all of the you know i use it kind of in, in quotation marks here was was elsewhere so it was not heard right everyone was kind of put into their you know spaces and places um and everything kind of going towards the silence so silence was almost like a rescue mechanism right a mechanism to save us all um which which was it, it was strange now that i think about it but, you know, it's, it's weird for me because I'm thinking about, you know, um, after the tsunami in Japan, when I was first in that area, one of the most striking things to me was like how quiet, how absolutely quiet it was there, except for, you know, like birds and like scratching metal in the wind. Right. It was also like, like you're, you're, that's one of my main memories of the disaster is just like the weird, weird, disturbing uh, silence of the whole thing. Just to bring you down, everybody. No, I think it's, the, you know, that, that, and I think you're right, you know, Wes, that you'd have to ask which period of the pandemic would be talking about, and people's experiences, of course, will vary all over the world, but they're, you know, you're thinking about a disaster as an event, and there's so many associations, and of course, we all get trapped into a sort of cinematic narrative frame, too, even if we don't mm -hmm. want to, and it need, there needs to be a lot of unfolding of plot very quickly, and it needs to be noisy. Yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. I mean, particularly with the genre of pandemic films, um, mm -hmm. because it can't, I mean, a film can't proceed at the pace, you know, right. uh, people would leave halfway through the film because nothing would happen or it'd just be a lot of this, this silence. I, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like storytelling and narratives around this pandemic and, and sense making. And Cassini, let me come back to you on that because I know it's something that you think a lot about two, you know, which which stories, which narratives do you think have gotten the most traction around COVID? And are they similar to sort of like normal disaster storytelling? Or is there something different about the way people have narrated this pandemic? And we've just been talking about three narratives just now. They might not be the mainstream ones, but they're interesting, I think. Yeah, you, you, it, it is actually interesting what, what stories came out of it. I think for me, the kind of the biggest story that perhaps we don't hear much in in a normal disaster right we're just gonna merge all the concepts now um, um so is that story of heroes 
right? A kind of normal people, ordinary people become heroes. And um, at, at least here in the UK, um, there was this whole kind of narration about the key workers, you know, who go and kind of make sure that the economy is going, right? Right at the start of the pandemic. And then, of course, there was the National Health Service um, and everybody was applauding them, you know, at eight o'clock on Thursday night and kind of things like this. So all of a sudden, uh, the ordinary people who provide um, services, right, to make sure that the country is running, became heroes. And yet nobody was talking about the austerity and the kind of cuts to welfare, right, cuts to health, that um, those heroes are kind of doing everything against to make sure that the population, that the country is functioning. Um, so for me, that, that was one story. And that story actually turned, it had a really interesting twist, which I didn't anticipate at the start of the pandemic, because many of those heroes, uh, I use it in quotation marks, last summer in particular, where we had like a gap, you know, between the lockdowns, between the pandemic, um, they turned um, into villains, you know, they turned into a threat. Um, in particular, the kind of lower paid workers, like servant, you know, um, service people and kind of waiters at the, um, in the restaurants, uh, because all of a sudden they were the people who are spreading COVID. Because the vaccination rates were not high enough. Uh, there were kind of younger people who have, who didn't want to vaccinate. That was the narrative. Um, and it, it was, it was fascinating to watch how from hero you turn into a threat. Wes, I mean, it, I'm curious in Japan, although you're sort of monitoring mm -hmm. Japan and the United States simultaneously yeah. as an expatriate yeah. living there, what kind of narratives were gaining traction in the early period of the pandemic in Japan? <clears throat> well, in Japan, it, it's interesting because I think as, if, if you're on Twitter at all, you've seen this is very contentious amongst uh, uh, people who are from other places living in Japan. Um, so at the beginning, so Japan had a certain, certain advantages, right? One of them, and I'm not going to like say it's cultural and all that stuff. One of them is being main one being having a robust public health system that people are not distrustful of particularly, right? Like, so people, people are used to being able to go to the doctor. People are used to being able to listen to public health officials. People are used to that stuff. Right. Um, and so, and also the practice of wearing masks is not weird at all because there's a really heavy pollen season across Japan. Um, and also people wear them during cold and flu season. And it's a pretty good idea, right? Like I, you know, I, I have to say, like I was, um, I kind of laughed at people wearing masks for years in Japan. And now I'm like, you know what? That's a really good idea. Uh, and so you didn't have that barrier to get over right. with people. And I think that was huge. Um one of the barriers you did have that was a problem, right, is that it's really hard to stop Japanese work culture and just say, boom, you're stopped. Um, and so I don't live in, in Tokyo, so that's a whole different experience, right, as the images we have of people getting on the trains every morning and going in. Like, mm -hmm. Kyoto's just not like that. So uh, it wasn't much of a barrier there, but I know people who live in Kyoto and work in Osaka, and they never stop getting on the train and going to work, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there was that. There was a lot of as things kind of stretched on, there was a lot of trying to figure out who to blame, which of course, people who research disasters, we know that's a really important thing in disasters is figuring out who you can blame. Um, and a lot of people felt like the Japanese government and the policies point in this direction were trying to blame foreigners, right? Which is always easy to do in Japan. So as you probably know, there's been really, really strict border controls about who yeah. can and can't 
come into Japan, but there aren't for Japanese citizens, right? So you could, you could, in theory, go on vacation in Hawaii and then fly back into Japan if you're a Japanese system, a citizen. But if you are a uh, American, a Hawaiian living in Japan and want to go see like your dying parent, uh, you cannot, right? Like things like that. And, uh, under certain circumstances, you can't. Like I was able, I'm very lucky. My dad got really sick last March. I was able to go home and come back because I had... Mm a really nice visa. I have a very uh, useful visa uh, and I was able to keep it now. So I'm very lucky, but not everyone's in that situation. Right. So that was one narrative. And then um, a lot of it became, you know, and this is kind of frustrating if you, if you research other disasters, a lot of it became kind of triumphalist. Like, why are we so good at this in Japan? Why are we so great at handling these while all of Gaikoku, all of these foreign countries are so bad at it? Uh, what's so excellent about us? Right. And a lot of people, um, buy into that about anything with Japan, right? And if you were skeptical of it, you were uh, a villain, right? So, um, you know, I don't know. Why is Cuba doing so well at it, right? They don't, they don't apply the same logic to it. So. Yeah, or Belarus. Belarus, that's one you don't hear, right? That's one you don't hear. There's a lot of countries you don't hear. And like, you know, a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa who also do uh, as much as they can at public health um, went along doing well as well as they could for not having access to vaccines right and same with vietnam like vietnam, vietnam. tried really hard yeah. and did really well up until the point where just not having access to vaccines like uh right. finally finally caught up right you know my brother-in-law lives in vietnam and he was him and his family like where it didn't leave their apartment building for months you know uh and then they finally all end up getting covid once like just the not having access to vaccines became a deal Let me just remind folks real quickly that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Ksenia Chimutana and West Cheek today. And I want to get to, so we have a comment here from um, James Coleman talking about this bizarre tipping point, the we want this to be all done, so let's just say it's over imperative. And that seems to be yeah. not only in the UK, this is happening in, in the United States, and even parts of the United States that have been extremely conscientious and well-governed throughout the pandemic. So that leads me to um, how I introduced you both, which is your recent publication, uh, Build, Be Building Back Better is Neoliberal Post-Disaster Reconstruction, which you published last summer in the journal Disasters. So, I mean, I don't believe that the, this disaster is over, but let's, let's just follow the trend for a second. <laughs> Governments around the world want it to be and are moving into a so-called endemicity phase. So it's time to crank up the Build Back Better machine, right? I mean, we're, we're in disaster recovery. So I want to hear about this article. And Cassinia, maybe you can set it up for us and then we can talk about it. And I just want to say one thing about this, this phrase. People may not know it, but well, you'll tell us what, it, what it's about. But when, when the Biden administration adopted Build Back Better as a campaign slogan, I literally fell out of my chair. It was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. <laughs> I thought they were trolling me. Yeah, it felt that way, right? A joke, <laughs> right? So, yeah. and, and as we discuss, others who are not familiar with what this is about will get it. Ksenia, set it up for us. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think every disaster scholar kind of just said, "What?" You know, <laughs> just like, I, I, "Am I reading this right?" 
uh, it, it was fascinating. So building back better um, is it, really kind of, it, 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 it's not new, right, in disaster studies. And it came about um, as a result of the Boxing Day tsunami um, and was kind of introduced by the UN. And then it, it was made famous by Bill Clinton who kind of said, right, we are just going to go and build back better, right, and make it all uh, kind of better for everyone. And the aim at that point was really about kind of to reconstruct, you know, and do this, this normal post-disaster reconstruction that doesn't address any root causes, but, you know, build a couple of schools and perhaps some housing. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, so that, that phrase was always there. Um, and because it's so closely linked to resilience, I think lots of disasters cause critically or uncritically, um, gone back to this over the years. And then all of a sudden, during the sort of COVID summer, um, first Boris Johnson came with this and he literally meant, you know, physically building back better, so rebuilding infrastructure um, because, you know, he wants to level us all up and that's going really, really well in the UK. I'm you know, obviously joking here. Um, and then the Justin Trudeau um, start using the phrase European Commission. And then Biden woke up one morning and decided to use this as the kind of as, as the whole right um, uh, foundation for for his campaign, and then now it's uh, part of the government. And so the whole building back better thing, as we see it now, has really become do a, a dominant narrative um, in in resilience um, building. Um, and and COVID provided such a good foundation for it because we all have lived now through disaster. And therefore, right, we have proven that we can be resilient. And, you know, if we can't, then maybe we, we building back better can help us. And to me, building back better, it's such a fantastic slogan, kind of fantastic neoliberal slogan, because it really tells us the kind of the the story that neoliberalism has invented, right? It creates a story of hypernormalization that you know your Chuck um, coined that word, where it's the story and not the reality that matters, right? And we kind of we keep retelling the story, and of course because the story of building back better is very positive, it is narrated through the idea of. Um, kind of more sophisticated systems, right? And the more sophisticated systems are, the more we invest in the economy, the more we kind of, um, you know, spend, spend a bit more money, then that becomes a story of success. And for that story of resilience to truly become successful, we, of course, need an enemy. And, you know, it's, it's always us versus them, right? This is how neoliberalism works. And so in this case, that them was COVID and not austerity. It wasn't greed. It wasn't selfishness. And so what we hear is that kind of, yes, everything is like really rubbish now, right? COVID kind of ruined our lives. Um, but because we will build back better, everything will be happily ever after. But what they're not telling us is that that happily after will be for very few, right? So we're building back better for very few and not for the rest. Wes, let me bring you in on this, and I particularly I like the what Ksenia pointed out. This sort of um, there's a slippage between the notion of building back, which is actually physical and infrastructural, like like a shovel in the ground kind of thing, which has long. Every politician loves that kind of building because it's making jobs, but also there's a slippery side to the building part of it because it, it could mean other kinds of infrastructures right i mean so i guess i'm it, trying to give the could. concept of yeah right okay i'm trying i'm trying to give the yeah. concept a little bit right. of power here yeah 
I mean, it could, and that's the interesting thing about, well, one of the interesting things about disasters, right, is in that moment, it could mean a lot of things, but it tends to go on to mean one thing, right? So I, I remember um, early on after the, the uh, 2011 tsunami in Japan being um, in Tohoku and in a meeting where, where they were presenting kind of the plans to build, you know, these monstrous 10 meter high seawalls and elevate the towns uh, above that, these huge, huge, huge infrastructure projects. And I was sitting next to a Japanese engineer and I kind of looked over at him and he kind of shook his head and we were kind of looking like this is uh, crazy. And then the next year I was in the same location hearing the same presentation and um, I kind of started whispering. There's a, I was sit, seated next to another, another engineer this time. Um, and I started kind of whispering to them, like, this costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build this, like in this one town. Like, what if it was just like you paid some people to keep some old military trucks, like in good maintenance? And if there's a tsunami alarm, you just crank them up and drove them slowly up the street, like picking up people. And we kind of were actually like sitting in the back, like working out because he's an engineer. So he could do this. I can't. I'm a sociologist. I can't do this math, but kind of working out like uh, like how much that would cost, you know, and it's nowhere near. It's nowhere near uh, that. But it doesn't look like building back better. It doesn't look like building. It just looks like a thing. And, you know, it's not even simple stuff like that. It's 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 just like uh, we're talking about COVID. Like what if you um, what if you had robust public health care? It's like, well, you know, that's not really that's not really building, is it? That's not really building back better. You know, I was, um, I've been, uh, by coincidence, I've been teaching Katrina this week in my, I'm not thinking it's Mardi Gras week. I ended up. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, what Yeah, it, it, it worked out, but it was kind of on accident. And I'm, you know, I'm teaching Andy uh, Horvitz's uh, Katrina book, like one chapter out of it. And and I asked, like, not to put my students on the spot here, but I, I was asking them, like, Andy makes this argument, like, you know, that Hurricane Katrina is something that's not over. And it's like a hundred year process, right, of people not doing things intentionally, but um, working very hard to make this disaster, despite whatever they thought they were doing otherwise. Right. And so I'm kind of asking my students, OK, so do we assume there are going to be no disasters in the future? Like, no, there's going to be disasters in the future, right? Of course. Okay. So when do we start like kind of work working on those despite our best intentions? And they kind of strangely couldn't give me an answer. And I don't think it's their fault. I think it's uh, all of our faults is that's how we think about this stuff. And so we just want to have, um, we don't want to do that part. We don't want to think through what we're doing to build disasters. We want to have a disaster and then afterwards feel like we're doing something um, and that is one reason I'm going to go off another tangent here is why after disasters, if you look at the stories that are highlighted, the feel good stories, so many of them are about architecture schools or architects, or architects in particular, or, right. you know, these great kind of things. And I say this as someone who's a product of the Tulane School of Architecture, uh, no offense to anybody there, uh, but but it feels like doing something right if you go out yeah, and, sure. and build a building. Um, but is it really doing something is, is something that should be questioned, I think. But, you know, it's uh, interesting, Raz, you're kind of saying mm -hmm. that about sort of building and disaster. And I think it was Sarah mm -hmm. Brack who kind of wrote that to have resilience, you need to have a disaster, right? And yeah. that this is what we seem to be doing, right? And then yeah. we're creating this narrative that takes us to next disaster. And everything that we do, I think particularly now in COVID, um, it's really myopic, right? It's it's mm -hmm. sort of we're we're just focusing on the short term. Well, by we I mean decision makers on sort of short term economic and political benefits that will work in the next election. So we're building back better the immediate, uh, but we're not addressing any of the root causes. In fact, we're I think we're exa exacerbating them. 
Well, that's why I think a pandemic is confusing to people because it's like, what do you build? Right. right. Like, how do you make it better? Like, what do you what is that? Um, and what do you build back? Like, I don't know. You'd have to question like so much. And like a lot of the things we have to question are because this is a war is a pandemic. It's worldwide are really big questions about like things that we don't even want to approach questioning. Like, um, do we have to like slow down the pace of society so that people aren't flying back and forth between countries? Do we have to rethink like uh, borders and how they work? Right. Like don't, people don't want to stop and like think about these things. Like, you know, that's not building back better. No, we want to, you know, at best make a seawall at worst, make like um, a nice, a cool house for poor people. Right. Like these are, and so it brings up a lot of questions that I think people don't want to even approach, especially like politically, there's not political winners. No, I think that, and the part of it that I'm really worried about right now is that the, declaring the disaster over in the United States will then immediately, we're moving into the midterm elections there, will immediately move into a discussion of the economy. Oh, God. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the economy is, there's an infl inflation rate has been higher, but the economy is by normal indicators has done very well. And a lot of middle class and upper middle class people and wealthy people Mm -hmm. Made out like bandits in the pandemic. Their investments did great. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't know what more sort of object lesson you need to see how disasters not only reflect inequality, but then produce new inequalities. And but the building back better, you can already see the speech. You can hear the speech right now. I mean, Biden gave his say to the union today. You know, um, we're coming back strong and just look, here's the economic indicator. And, and so to somehow critique it, you have to take apart the whole political economy. I just don't think there's oxygen enough in the system to, to provide that kind of critique. I don't know. I'm, I thought you both were going to be the ones ranting, and now you got Yeah, I didn't hear. <laughs> well, I ranted about uh, taking the train and getting a paper pass for the train already. So I, but, you know, I, I didn't watch the State of the Union yet, but I heard that Biden's focus, he said, was going to be on deficit reduction. And it's like, at this moment in history... The Democratic Party, which, you know, of course, I'm going to I'm going to position it as the left party in America, but we all know that's ridiculous. But um, the Democratic Party are supposed to represent the left in America in the middle. And I'm going to say in the middle of a pandemic are still talking about deficit reduction is their main goal and funding funding the police more. It's like what I mean, where where, where did we learn? I mean, we didn't learn anything and we're not going to we're not going to. It's why, uh, you know, anyway. Let me just remind folks who are listening to COVID calls. Ksenia, um, just bring it back to you about because this is a perennial question um, that I know that you think about and talk about, write about on your amazing podcast, Disasters Deconstructed with Jason Von Metting. Learning, learning from this disaster. I mean, if Build Back Better is turns out to be the frame within which we learn from COVID it will immediately fall into these categories of, you know, reconstruction of damaged places. Oh, well, pandemic didn't damage any places. So then it's a reconstruction of damaged livelihoods. But in the channels that we've just been discussing, I'm trying not to take too negative of a turn here and look for some places for intervention. But um, what's on the table for lessons learned from this pandemic? I think, you know, I, I think it was the classic, lessons identified rather than learned yeah. right and that we were very good at that that's um, well said yeah and so to me you know what, what i think we're seeing now as disaster scholars the lesson that we are learning is that 
the only thing that it is to be built back better and made more resilient is the status quo, right? So the kind of the social structures that have been creating and are creating further vulnerabilities. And so people um, who are the heroes, right? As I was saying kind of a few minutes ago, the key workers um, and the, the, the health workers, um, they, they will be just further marginalized. And it has been really interesting to kind of to, to see that through this lessons identified uh, lens in that margin, it, it, what became very clear is the marginalization and further process of making vulnerable people who are actually here to kind of to serve middle classes, you know, as kind of as, as cruel as that sounds. I think that line has perhaps never be never been before as explicit that we saw who we need to function uh, for the country to function. And then everybody else, right? Those people who kind of, who have money and affluence and the middle classes. And so I think what the governments perhaps have learned from this is that they can keep throwing like shit at people, right? Because people would um, remain to be productive in order to achieve that, you know, the, the dream of resilience in order to kind of to try and survive somehow. Uh, and people adapt and people cope. Um, and we can see that the healthcare is getting privatized. You know, the, the tax rates are getting increased. The pensions are getting cut. And yet people adapt and people keep going and keep the country running. Um, and it is fascinating to see that, um, you know, neoliberalism hasn't collapsed in, in this climate. Um, and I, 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 I kind of, as, as positive as I am about resisting the social status quo, right? I just don't see how COVID didn't challenge us all to actually question yeah. how we live and didn't take kind of, you know, we didn't ask the decisions make, decision makers really to take any accountability. But let me stay with that for a second, because I do think there have been a couple of key disruptions. One was the Black Lives Matter movement, and, but the other was the, the right-wing movement, global right-wing movement, which is sort of one part QAnon conspiracy, one part anti-vaccination. I don't know, maybe you don't, Wes, let me get you in on this. I don't know if you see those as disruptions mm -hmm. to the neoliberal build back better narrative, but they did gum up the works a bit, uh, both of those. If you if your goal was to managerial your way through this, to resilience your way through this and get things back mm -hmm. to normal, both of those coming from very different ideological perspectives have mm -hmm. been uh, movements that didn't want to play by the rules as sketched out by experts in the pandemic. Yeah, well, one of the really kind of uh, depressing things for me, which being depressing today, um, was, you know, as someone who was really involved, like involved, like on, uh, out, out in the streets in, in Black Lives Matter in America and then moving to Japan and following it closely, uh, is that, um, you know, uh, it's been what happened? Where are we now? Right. We had the, the president, uh, Joe Biden, last night in a State of the Union speech saying we need to fund the police. Right. So these years and years of um, of activism is kind of being being squashed, I feel like. And then you have I think the right wing movements are ascendant of nothing else, because like, you know, they have they have traction and they have, you know, a, a news channel dedicated to broadcasting their views. And in the end, if we're going to be um, and political about it, they represent like what uh, bourgeois sensibilities want, right? So they 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 are, uh, are are stopping all of these other things from happening. So like while um, kind of nominally left parties will say like, uh, oh no no, we support Black Lives Matter and we don't like these truckers, you know, uh, politically they line up 
with the truckers far more than anything else. And, you know, they want the they want the pandemic to be over just as much as the as the trucker columns do. Right. And so uh, I think politically they line up. They would they would rather like, look, if you're just looking at it this way, would the Democratic Party rather uh, mask mandates and the pandemic and all these things be over now? Or would they rather like do something serious about uh, police violence in America now? Right. I mean, it's clear what what side they're on. Uh, politically. And I was going to have one thing to that, um, mm. talking about building back better. One thing I've noticed moving internationally during this that has been built back better is just the uh, regimes of bureaucracy for for immigrating between anywhere. And I'm in a very lucky position of being yeah. an American moving between countries, right? I'm just, you know, imagining anyone else moving between countries right now. One thing that is going to remain with us uh, throughout after this pandemic is gone, if it's ever gone, are these new border regimes that make it... Um, harder and harder and harder to be able to just even move between countries that you're supposed to be moving between, right? Mm. Um, just the amount of paperwork and verification and those things, um, I, that's not going to go away, I don't think. So the article is Building Back Better is Neoliberal Post-Disaster Reconstruction by West Cheek and Ksenia Chimutna. So please do check that out, article in Disasters. Um, we have a few minutes left. I want to turn to um, one of the sort of kind of key tools that traditionally emergency managers and disaster researchers have in, engaged to try to make sense of the temporal dimensions of disaster, and it's the so-called disaster cycle. Uh, and it takes a lot of different forms. But I want to ask you, um, Ksenia, and then uh, Wes get you in on this. Ksenia, you uh, co-authored an article with Lee Bosher. It's a great article. It's titled, Stop Going Around in Circles Towards a Reconceptualization of disaster risk management phases and appeared in the journal Disaster Prevention and Management. Um, I'm critical uh, of the disaster cycle, but I've never been helpful about it. And that's why I liked about your article. It's like, it's critical. And then it's like, and now here's many other models to try to work with the problems of nonlinearity and history and data and disinformation. Talk a little bit about this because I think COVID Maybe one, I'm not going to say bright spot, but one productive thing that can come from it is I don't think emergency management research is going back to where it was before. I hope not. You know, I hope you're right. Um, and so this this article that you're alluding to, so Lee Bosher and Dewan, Dewald von Niekerk, we've been talking about this for a really long time. You know, it's, And I mean, we're not the only people who are talking about the problem with this disaster cycle, disaster merry-go-round. Um, I think it was John Stewart, right, the, the comedian who kind of said after Katrina that, well, FEMA did exactly what they promised to do. They started after a disaster and went back, right, in circle uh, to the next disaster. Um, and so the, the biggest problem for us and the reason we really wanted to kind of to, to write that paper um, to show the problem that the main problem with disaster risk management cycle is that disaster in that cycle is depicted as an event. Um, that, it, you know, something that has a start and a stop. And then when it stops, you know, we can kind of move on and do something else. Um, and of course, that is never the case. I think we've, through this hour, well, in fact, in all the COVID calls, it, it, you've discussed with every single guest that disaster is, is a process. And then at some point, it just kind of manifests, right? So there is a boom, you know, when vulnerability and the hazard come together and there is a boom. And we see that as an event um, and it comes as a shock, um, but it really, in reality, it's never the case. And so what we are trying to propose is that we need to think about um, the, the process of disaster in a much more nonlinear way, 
where the aim really shouldn't be, where we shouldn't really be focusing on a disaster per se, not on a hazard per se, but we should instead be focusing on reducing vulnerabilities throughout. And so when disaster strikes, um, it therefore becomes an opportunity to, for a positive transformation. And we start thinking not about reconstructing just the physical infrastructure, but considering how we should together with emergency managers, you know, with, with policymakers, with health professionals, uh, disaster experts as well, who kind of have been completely missing, right, from, from the narrative in COVID. Um, how do we make sure that it's the social, um, social problems that are addressed? You know, how do we make sure that the healthcare is provided? How do we make sure that um, people, children can go to school and kind of all the root causes that, that we've been talking about uh, previously? And hopefully that conceptual model that we propose is like a helix, right? That kind of keeps going and going. Um, as one of our friends said, until you reach utopia, um, <laughs> how, 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 do, how do we get there? How do we think about it? How do we start the discussion? that disaster is a process and that that is the most important thing you know how do we talk about it how do we accept it because you know um in in, in reality we actually get a lot of um kicking from emergency managers so with this and also with this whole crusade as you called it on no natural disasters um because somehow emergency managers feel very protective about disasters and events uh, because then yeah, you sure. can act on it I, uh, Wes, let me bring you in on this because I, uh, the problem is a real is a real problem. And many times I said, well, you know, why do we need these models at all? Let's go to narratives. Let's, um, you know, there's other ways to try to conceptualize complex temporal phenomena. But at the same time, we do want to have ways for engineers and social scientists to work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, some of this, I think, is a, is a little bit hardwired into the way that the disciplines have developed and the kinds of conceptualizations and models that are required to get funding and do work. It sounds a little overdetermined, yeah. I know, but I, I wonder where you come in on the sort of use of these models and if there's some way past them. <laughs> it's funny because we've run into this every, for years. And, uh, you know, because and I both work in the uh, the ITC program at Ritsumeikan in Kyoto. And we, we've we talked about this for years because um, we use this, the disaster cycle. It gets used. And then every year I'm like, I don't like it. But then you run up against a, an issue where it's like but you do actually have to at some point like work through in some way uh, organizing and categorizing things, right? Um, it, uh, so it's difficult, but I, you know, and I used to teach when I was at Tulane, I taught in the Department of Homeland Security where I'm teaching largely cops and military who are getting out of the military who want to go into emergency management. Uh, and so this cycle is really, really important in that world. Right. And believing in the existence of this cycle is really, really important in that world. So um, I usually just use it to teach the problem. You know what I mean? Like so like here is how the cycle is depicted. Uh, here are the problems with that. And here is how it. And, and I find that even the most kind of um, very confined, straightforward thinkers uh, are interested in why it could be a problem to think in that way and how you can kind of work yeah. around that and what are some examples of it you know and if you talk about how like um rescue and recovery aren't separate like there's no fine line between them and that mid can happen 
recovery and things like that. People get it, like right. Thing you have to have to go develop a spear. Oh, that that uh, it has problems with it, but you know it exists and people know what it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could go on about what I don't like about it forever, but we all know that. No, so um, you know, you can yeah, use it to the to the extent that it exists. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, this is why I was talking to. Um, it opens up a bunch of things about COVID that I think really matter about um, numbers and the problem of numbers in COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to run to a meeting, of... so it was nice talking to you guys. All right, Wes. Sorry, to sorry to run off in the middle of your on. thoughts, Scott, but I got to run to this meeting. See that's you fine. Guys. I'll tweet it. I'll tweet it about it later, and you can read it there. Uh, but uh, just talking to, <laughs> he really did have to go. I was talking to um, Amy Slayton last week, and um, I, I expressed it this way. I said. What I want to do is have my flood gauge and I want you to look at the flood gauge and then I want to tell you everything I hate about it. And and that Mm. in that, if you can keep people's attention long enough, that that actually can be productive. But there's so many pressures. Yeah, there's so many pressures sort of driving the construction of the flood gauge, the construction of the model and not enough space for the moment of critique, which I, again, I think can be huge. And it's not like practitioners don't know there's a problem with the, with the models. I agree. And I think it's, it's kind of what, what we should be talking about more is the framing, right? And we are kind of going immediately into the problem or, you know, looking at the floodgate, but we are not discussing at all how it's framed and why it's framed that way. And that, that is the disciplinary silos that you've been talking about, right? Um, for somebody, it's a structure. For somebody, it's a social construct. For somebody else, it's something completely different, the cost of it. Um, but we, we, never, we never come together and say, what actually, what do we mean? And what do we want? You know, what is the purpose of this framing? Let me, Ksenia, um, do you have another couple of minutes? I wanted to bring up another sure. couple. So I'm sorry that Wes had to run. He's really going to be on time for... New faculty in the department. He needs to be on time. I know. know. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to ask you, I mean, about um, what you've been paying attention to in terms of COVID and sort of gender and disaster research. And I know you've been, one of your research areas is with this group, the Gender Responsive Resilience and Intersectionality in Policy and Practice group. Um, which is kind of fascinating, and I don't know much about it, and I'd like to know a little bit more about that initiative, but then also kind of tie it in to, because I think it ties back very well to what you were discussing earlier about, um, you know, what needs to be built back better or that that turn from the hero to the villain. It's been healthcare workers, and particularly um, in the United States, nurses, um, people in janitorial staffs, uh, women who have had to leave the workforce to take care of children, so sort of like the politics of reproductive labor, a lot of that has fallen along gender lines as well. It's another area I'm not sure it's received enough attention. Um, yeah, indeed. So the uh, the project that you're talking about, the GRIP project, it was funded by, it, it's a part of the Overseas Aid, so GCRF, Global Challenge Research Fund, uh, which kind of UK, a uh, big, big UK thing, no more. Uh, the AIDS isn't a thing anymore. It was kind of scrapped as one of the things. Um, but we needed to save money, you know, during COVID. Um, and we got lucky enough that our funding actually got extended. So we have another couple of years and we're working um, with um, partners in Latin America and the Caribbean and Southeast Asia and on, also in Sub-Saharan Africa. Because what, what we are trying to do is to actually challenge the normative 
um, understandings and definitions of resilience and gender in the context of disaster. So we want to, uh, we are commissioning projects on the ground, uh, different communities and job projects um, who resilience and gender and disaster risk reduction on the ground without us telling them what to do. You know, so that that's kind of com completely uprooting what the normal uh, disaster risk reduction is about. And so talking about gender um, in the UK, you know, because that's where I, I spent my COVID, <laughs> my COVID times, my COVID two and a half years. Um, it, it indeed, the kind of the gendered side of things um, wasn't almost talked about a lot you know the the gender was mentioned somewhat in relation to you know to people who do work but then the whole um issue of ho homeschooling came about right and kind of working from home um and the gendered aspect of that was you know it was impossible to miss and whilst of course you know there are um there, there are many fathers who were primary carers nevertheless there were more mothers and what was interesting to see, so th this whole, you know, many organizations kind of started to, to work around it, to support, um, support their workers uh, with well-being initiatives. Let's, let's not go, don't, don't start me on that. We'll be here for another hour. Um, but what was interesting is the way that UK government actually then depicted the gendered side um, of COVID. Um, I think it was last year when uh, the second lockdown came and the government issued this visual image of kind of working from home and so there were I, I think four or three houses you know where there was um sort of shadows of people doing things like cooking cleaning um and you know looking after children and all of those shadow images were women and it was an ironic you know they just they kind of somebody hasn't even clicked that actually what they're showing is exactly what's happening and that is precisely the problem and we're not talking about it um, so, yeah, I, I do feel that we need much more research um, in the way that we understand um, gendered aspects of disasters, but not in a not in a binary way. This is this is another issue that we uh, divide yeah. everybody onto kind of men and women. Right. Um, but that is not the case. Non-binary people have perhaps been affected more than the whole kind of binary narrative. Right. And we are not talking about that, particularly um, in the global south. Um, yeah, there is, there is just so much more to kind of to unpack and to understand and to go beyond the gender as just a women's issue because, uh, well, indeed it isn't. Would you, you just made me think of the um, brilliant uh, Dr. Aksa Sheikh in India, who's the first out trans doctor in India to open a COVID clinic. And I had, I had her on COVID calls and she's tremendous. Person, and she but she pointed to you know this this moment as one in which trans people come in for particular so they come in for sort of bureaucratic scrutiny because there's a whole bureaucracy of COVID management which involves forms and those forms require mm -hmm. identifications and and vaccine passports and they and so this is a sort of forcing of the question uh, of gender identity but then also if, I don't know if you followed the news from Texas my home state in the United States. It seems that policymakers have taken advantage of this moment um, of severe societal disruption to double down on the notion of a nuclear family. And they've actually passed a bill that basically says um, if you're a parent and you um, support even mental health support for a trans child, then that's child abuse. 
So, I, I mean, I guess I wonder how you, you know, what the what the record out there shows or, or the kind of questions you're asking as a researcher where, where disaster can can be a moment to inflict further violence, not only along maybe what we consider traditional gender norms, but to create new violence for yeah. people who are non-binary. Absolutely. Now, when we say that disaster is an opportunity, some use that yeah. as an opportunity to, yeah, to, right. to kind of to create disaster in the future, right? To create further vulnerability. I think, there, in fact, there's more of that, right, than a kind of positive transformation. And I, I feel looking at the kind of research and evidence, um, and in, you know, in the way that you're describing now, how the kind of the gender norms have been reestablished. I feel that. This is because perhaps um, the status quo was threatened to an extent, right? And th there was some resistance and the kind of the, the, the shakeup was really quite significant. Mm. Um, and so what do we do is we bring back the patriarchal norms, right? We bring back kind of the white supremacy. We bring back um, all the foundations and the steps that let capitalism grow and become stronger. Um, and it's very easy to do because um, we grow up, I think most of us grow up without even realizing that actually those patriarchal norms and the norms of white supremacy, they're, they're ingrained, right? These are our good kind of um, sort of lighthouses. So everything uh, that is good is sort of Christian values, right? Patriarchal values. Um, and and challenging that, you know, feeling that disruption may challenge that becomes a threat to the status quo. And I guess that's why we see the kind of um, kickback to making sure that, you know, people don't don't step away. Right. We make rules stricter. And of course, disaster provides a fantastic opportunity. You can tighten the laws whilst everybody else is distracted by, you know, looking after their family and just trying to survive. I mean, it's not just COVID, right? I mean, I think the the discourse coming out of um, Russia about rationalization for this war. Part of that has to do with de so-called degenerate Western values, which have should have no place in in greater Russia. And every time I think something like that which should get no traction, uh, and I don't know how to measure that in Russia, but every time I would think something like that these days should get no, no traction, you know, like that bill in Texas passes. I mean, you see plenty of evidence for it so it's not just as you said it's a disaster provides an opportunity but also the sort of culture war along gender lines and sexuality lines can be a cause of spelly almost i mean it's it's it has so much more power than i think we often ascribe to it absolutely and it, it's it, it is beyond the kind of the the the, the normal like gender lines right or sexuality right lines i think it's it it is that is to do with otherness gets put into the boxes, right? We see the same with, for example, homelessness, right? When people yeah. cannot um, get vaccines or cannot um, get any support because they don't have a dress, right? And, you know, they don't have a dress very often. That's, well, most of the time it's not their choice. Um, we see the same with um, incar incarcerated people, you know, who have been marginalized and othered and made into a threat. Um, and so who doesn't fit into this frame of, you know, good citizen, resilient citizen, um, just doesn't fit, uh, that just wouldn't, doesn't get kind of the support because that doesn't fit with the overall narrative of the story in which the society operates. 
And I think that that this is what we really need to think about when we talk about disasters. Um, do we also, as a society, act in a way that creates further marginalization? And how do we do it? You know, by just protecting ourselves. Why? How do we actually work together and stand in solidarity to to resist that? We're almost up on time. Um, actually, I've been greedy with your time and gone over time, but I, I just want to give a, a plug also for the podcast that you do with Jason Von Metting, Disasters Deconstructed. And maybe you can say a little bit about maybe what it's been like to do that during COVID. Did the project change at all during during COVID and what's on the, what's on the front burner for that project? It's a great podcast okay. and everyone should listen to it, by the way. And I've been a guest and it was a really fun conversation. You have, and you've been supporting us throughout. So thank you so much for for that. Uh, it's been it's been fun, you know, recording fun, um, recording from our bedrooms. Uh, maybe yeah. the sound is better now. I know with all the duvets, right, pillows around. Um, but we've we've actually <laughs> we've yeah. kind of um, restored the format a little bit in in that we are releasing fewer episodes now, um, just to kind of keep our sanity. But what we've been also really trying to do is to. Um, amplify the voices of early career researchers and researchers from the global south and in the last two seasons season three seasons four five and six we have um been inviting early career researchers to curate seasons with us you know daria and alexander williams was fantastic he brought so many voices and this season we are working with early career researchers who guest edited the emerging voices special issue for disaster risk management and i tell you what you know the future of disaster risk is in safe hands um, yeah. these people are giving me so much hope and so much inspiration. They're really challenging everything that we are kind of questioning rather than challenging. Um, just wonderful to see, you know, they talk about positionality. They talk about, um, creative methodologies. They're really not scared of asking questions about the concepts that we're kind of sitting almost comfortably with. Um, so yeah, it's been wonderful. Jason and I have been learning so much. Um, and we, you know, we keep keep going um, with, with this for now. I talked to, um, before we were on, I, I shared with you, this has been a busy day on COVID calls, and I talked to Kathleen Tierney this morning, the second call I talked to her early in the pandemic, and um, she said something quite similar at the end of the call. She said she thought, that, and this is the, the best time, she said, to get into disaster risk research. And she really has a lot of optimism about it. So for those who've been listening to this call, they might wonder, God, these are the most depressing people in the world to hang out with. But we, you know, we, we do this work and we're critical because we care about the outcome. And I, I completely agree with you. And younger scholars who I've had on COVID calls, they don't honor the time-tested divide between activist and scholar. They... I mean, in so many different ways, and they, they're, you know, they are bringing truth to power. I think in this, in the halls of sort of knowledge production, in a way that I haven't seen in my, in my career. I'm hopeful. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. So, what's the next season about? Oh, we don't know yet. We're not that organized. We may appear so, <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll oh, tell you. That makes, <laughs> that makes me feel better. Um, okay, I think we've, we'll wrap up. Just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. And today um, I was talking with Wes Cheek 
and Ksenia Chmutina on their new article about building back better, which you can catch out in the journal Disasters, and you can catch up with Ksenia on the Disasters Deconstructed podcast, and you can find that anywhere that you get podcasts. And um, we have COVID calls coming up um, in the next few days. Please do tune in tomorrow for my next COVID calls discussion with my friend Russell Farr. We'll be talking about COVID in Texas. It'll be a discussion among a couple of old friends about what it's been like to make it through COVID time. So please do join me for that. And thanks again, Ksenia. It's always just great fun to talk to you and, and to uh, experience the clarity that you bring to these Thank issues. So Take much, care. Scott. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thank you.